The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My heart, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, if you weren't with us, 
we uh, looked at Exodus 14, and Jeff did a good job teaching uh, where God enters in and God kind of, <clears throat> God parts the Red Sea. Really familiar passage. It was a famous and spectacular scene. A key moment in the Israelites' rescue from the oppressive slavery of Egypt. Really, if you think about it, it was the definitive moment, right? It was the definitive moment. When the Passover happened and Pharaoh kicked them out of Egypt, that was, that was you know, salvation was basically accomplished that moment, but the people were out and Pharaoh still pursued them and he thought, I'm going to overtake them. He changed his mind. God hardened his heart. He said, I'm going to go get these, you know, this workforce that I basically just sent off. I'm going to go get them back. That's a lot of money I just sent down the street. I'm going to get them back and we're going to make them slaves again. God had led them, and this, is, this was interesting, right? God leads them out of Egypt. He leads them to take one direction in the desert. Then he changes his, he doesn't change his mind. He just changes their direction. He says, nope, go this way. And they change their direction. And, now, and then they go and they're pinned against the Red Sea. And Pharaoh sees them and he's like, oh, they're confused. Let's go after them. And he, and he knows that's a terrible uh, position. If you're, a, if you're an army if you're a military strategist, you're looking and go, these guys don't know what they're doing. Let's just go capture them. They've backed themselves up to the sea. What are they going to do? And God has led them here, but Pharaoh doesn't know that God is setting up, basically setting up an ambush for them. And they pursue. And God looks at Israel and says, this is all I need you to do. Look at the Red Sea. Just go forward. Now, that just fascinated me. When Jeff was preaching last week, I thought, how funny God looks at, face the Red Sea, look at the Red Sea. Here's what you need to do. Just chill out and go forward. Now, any good, you know, any, any Israelites looking forward here and going, go forward, go forward. I've got one step and then I'm swimming and I don't think I can make it across there with my donkey and my baby on my back. You know, I'm reminded of um, Jim Gaffigan when he says, you want to know what it's like to raise four kids. Imagine yourself swimming and somebody hands you a baby. That's basically what it is. How are you supposed to swim and carry this baby and carry your, it's not going to happen. And what does God do? Stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord. And then God opens up the Red Sea and now they can obey him. After he moves, after he performs this miracle, now they can obey him and they move forward and they carry all their stuff and they get everything through on dry ground. They get to the other side Egyptians begin, okay, let's, let's, they can do it. Why can't we do it? And they pursue just the pride and the arrogance, right? Just to think of pursuing in chariots while the, these walls of water are standing up. They pursue. And the people, I'm sure, are pretty concerned right now. Oh, no, what's going to happen? And what does God do? God just absolutely obliterates their army. He just decapitates the, the most powerful military force on the planet at the time, and he drops, he slams the Red Sea back on top of them, and it says bodies just litter the seashore. Crazy what happened. It's crazy. But one thing that's interesting, and, and Jeff pointed out last week, is that when the Israelites get pinned against the Red Sea, but God brings them there, and Pharaoh's coming, what do the Egyptians do? The Egyptians say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? This is what they say to Moses. We would rather be slaves to the Egyptians than die out here in the wilderness. That was their response. 
And Moses spoke the word of the Lord to him and said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. That's all they had to do was stand and watch as God accomplished the definitive work of their salvation. They had just freaked out and wanted to go back to Egypt. Now, what is that? There's something about us as human beings that we would rather be comfortable than experience the unknown. Henry Ford, uh, when commenting on building the first automobile, he has famously said that if I would have asked the people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. See, God doesn't ask the people what they want. God gives them exactly what they need. He doesn't lead them on the most convenient path. He doesn't lead them in the safest path. He leads them in the path that he wants to lead them on where they're going to see the miraculous. They're going to see his glory displayed in ways they never thought possible. And now, this is where we are in 15. Here they stand on the other side of the Red Sea, victorious and free. Can you imagine this? They've spent their entire life, generations, their parents and their grandparents have spent their entire lives in slavery and physical and emotional and verbal abuse. They've been dominated by the powers of Egypt. They have been subjugated for 400 years. And now all of a sudden, and you can see that they kind of have this PTSD, right? They, they, they really do. They, they go back to feeling like slaves and feeling like they're lost and, fe- and scared all the time. And now they're on the other side of the Red Sea after just watching God destroy their enemies, bodies littering the sea, and now they're free. Can you imagine their captors have been killed? Can you imagine how liberating this was? And what's great, and I'm thankful to the Lord for, is that we don't have to hypothesize in how they felt because Moses has done us a favor. He has shared, as it be, his Instagram story with us this morning. He, had, he wrote a song about the Red Sea incident. And that's what the better part of chapter 15 is all about. It's Moses' artistic response to the glory of God displayed in their salvation at the Red Sea. See, Moses stood, Moses saw, and then Moses wrote a song about it. And that's what we're going to study this morning. When Moses saw God move powerfully for him and for Israel, his awe, like as Jeff was saying, his awe was captured. His imagination was provoked and his soul was stirred in such a way that it caused him to write this psalm or write this song. And what's cool is this section, this chapter 15 here, this is the oldest section of the book of Exodus. Okay, so let me just give us some background here. Exodus is not uh, a moment by moment, like Moses has his notepad down and he's writing down as things are happening. Okay, it's a, a moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour accounting. That's not what happens. What happens is Moses, when he gets to the uh, promised land, or the edge of the promised land, and they're about to go in, God says, you can't go with them. And he's sending them into the promised land. And Moses says, oh, okay, let's, I'm gonna write down 
the Pentateuch. I'm going to write down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I'm going to write this down for God's people so they have a good history of what's happened. And I'm not going to go. I'm going to die. So I'm going to write this down for everyone. Okay. But what's interesting is when, Mo, when, when this event happens, Moses immediately writes a song. Okay. He writes this song. He puts it in his journal. He teaches it to all the people. And then when he's writing the, the account of Exodus, he includes his song right in the chapter where it happened. So he actually wrote this, you know, the day after, the day of, something like that. And now he's including it in his, his, his basically, kind of like his, almost like his autobiography, he's including his song in the chapter where he wrote it. So this is where Moses is at right now. Moses, think about it. He's sitting on the dry beach on the other side of the Red Sea, and he pens this song. And then Miriam, who we get her name for the first time, this is Moses' sister, most likely the same sister that uh, watched him and, and, and rescued him with the, with the, when he was in the, uh, the basket, uh, and, he, and he was uh, rescued by um, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Mo, she kind of teaches it to the people. So Moses writes it, and then she teaches it to the people. And, that, and then they start singing it. She's got her tambourine. Uh, and what that means is by the time Moses was writing Exodus, um, they had been singing this song for the good part of 40 years. All right? So think about the historical significance of that. I mean, 40 years later, you've got kids that are going, Mom, why do we always sing this song? Where did this song come from? And then Exodus gives them the context. This is why we sing this song. This song roots us back to this moment of salvation. Moses here experiences something deeply moving, something full of awe, watching the waters pile up, watching them crash back down, watching God save his people. And what does he do? He he pauses and he sits down and he writes a hymn and he writes a song. Now, that, that that, that causes me to ask this question, why? And not even that, why do we sing? Do you realize how odd kind of, how odd it is to sing? It's a very odd thing to sing. I thought about the Imagine if I got up here and I tried to sing this sermon to you. You'd like to see me try? That's not happening. It's just, it's very, I have, you know, I had friends, you know, that, that have grown up and they're, they're what we would call thespians, right? And they would joke around and sometimes they just bust out into song. And it's so awkward. It's the most uncomfortable thing ever. Like we're talking, it's not singing time. We never sing face to face. We sing shoulder to shoulder. Don't do that. That's weird, right? What causes human beings to sing? It's not just communication, you know, like, well, birds sing, kind of. That's their voice. They're talking, right? That's how they talk. We don't sing in our communication to one another. Why do we sing? Well, Moses tells us in Genesis that human beings are created in God's image. The Latin phrase that we use there is in imago Dei. Okay, we're made in the image of God. And that means a lot of different things, but one of the facets is that we were made to sing. The prophet Zephaniah says, the Lord your God is in your midst, 
a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We were made by a singing God, and therefore we were made to sing. God himself sings. Many, and actually in Genesis 2, the account of the creation, it, it's, it's more like a song. It's more like a sonnet that God is singing creation into, an, into existence. And it's interesting too. And uh, Narnia, that, that Aslan sings over creation, it brings it out of its frozen state. Now, you might say, well, I, okay, that's what the Bible says, but I don't, I don't really believe the Bible. But I, I, think if you, I think if you even step away from the Bible, I think this is something that's universally true, that human beings are made to sing and we love to sing. If you think about it, when you see something beautiful, what do you want to do? I think you want to say something beautiful about it. Sometimes, have you ever seen something and you're like, I wish I could wax eloquently about that right now. I just... I, I don't have the words to say, this is beautiful and I want to say it. And I think this is one of the reasons why when we fall in love, we love, we all, everybody got a song, right? Everybody has a song. You probably didn't write the song unless you're Joel, which is cool, whatever. But you borrow somebody else's experience, right? You borrow somebody else, Marvin Gaye, whoever it is, right? And you borrow him, man, he can say it right and he can sing it right. So that's going to be our song. And we're connected to that song, right? We know that when we're in love, words alone won't do. We, we want to sing them. And maybe sometimes we, we want to write something. We, we write little love notes or we go to Hallmark and let them do it for us. We sign our name. We're like, that's what I was trying to say. That's exactly what I meant. And in Zephaniah there, this is, the prophet says this. God quiets us by his love, and it says this, he exalts over us with loud singing. And this is what I want to say. Singing is about exaltation. And I bet you don't know what that word means, because exaltation is different than exaltation. What? E-X-U-L-T, exalt is different than exalt, E-X-A-L-T. Let me, let me just put it like this. Right, let me define it first. We'll go to dictionary.com. Here we go. Exalt, to show or feel a lively or a triumphant joy, to rejoice exceedingly, to be highly exalted or jubilant. Okay, now let me put an example. To exalt something, exalt, E-X-A-L-T, means to look at something and go, that thing is amazing. That thing is high and lifted up. That thing is awesome. So when I walk into a room, right, and I see my mama's Texas sheet cake, I say, that is amazing. I exalt that thing. But then when I get through dinner and I cut that piece that's obnoxiously too large and I get my glass of milk and I sit down and I eat it, Mm, this thing is amazing. This is what it means to exalt. 
Exalt means that thing over there is amazing. Exalt means you're experiencing it. You're tasting it. You're enjoying it. And in the moment, you're worshiping it. Texas sheet cake. It's for real, though. It's for real. Now, listen, this is what human beings, now, don't we always do this? We, we want something. When we enjoy something, we want to share it. We want to say something good about it. This is just who we are, how how we're made. This is what C.S. Lewis on, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, this is what he says. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So he says, you haven't really enjoyed something until you've tasted it and, you're, and then you exult in it. You actually say, this is amazing. Or you share it with someone. It's its appointed consummation. It's not just meant to enjoy. It's meant to enjoy and sing about it and celebrate it. Let me keep quoting it. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with, with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. This is frustrating. This is why the Scotch Catechism that we quoted today says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall know then that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Now, this is the good reason why we Instagram. This is the good reason why we share pictures on Facebook. Not to, make, not to get that little adrenal reaction when we see those hearts, Right? but we share because we're enjoying something and we're exulting in it and we want other people to enjoy it with us. Yes, the majority of our people are looking at the same beautiful sunset, right? But there's something in us that wants to capture it, to praise it, to share it, and let other people in on the beauty of it. You're sitting there and you're looking and you're like, I this is amazing. I want to capture it. I want to say something. I got to go to Psalms and find something about the glory of the Lord and his creation. And then I got to Instagram it and want everybody to see it. Right? And you take it with your iPhone and it looks so awesome. And then Jarek cheats by using a like $2,000 camera. And you're like, oh, his looks so much better. Crap. I didn't capture it just like he did. Right? That's what we do. We want to, or your kids, they do something cute. And you're like, you want to capture it. And so then you're like, can you do that again? Like, replay that. Like, we want to capture it. We want to share it. We want others to enjoy it. Now, this is the same reason why we sing. And that is exactly what Moses is doing for us here today. He's showing, can I say this? He's showing us what to do with our life. We're to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
We are to exult in him and his works. So when God moves in Moses' life, Moses pops a squat and exults in the God of his salvation. You see this? This is a praise break in Moses' life, right? This is like almost like an intermission for a, for a, you know, during a drama or a play. Moses is like, hold on. I know we got places to go and people to see, but let's just take a moment and enjoy what just happened and exult in the God who just annihilated our enemies. I was joking with the guys back, back, you know, back in the back. I could almost hear like, and it's time, tambourines going, and Moses is like, let's get it in right now. It's time to praise. He takes, a, I mean, that's literally what's happening. It's funny, Joel was looking at it because he teaches, you know, it says like, I'm gonna look at verse 21. It says, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Basically, she teaches all the people like the first two lines of the, of the thing. So that's the hook, right? They just keep coming back to that. She's got all the people singing that part. Moses is singing his prophetic part, the long thing. This whole thing's going on. It's awesome. He's taking a moment just to exult in God. And this shows us, something very important for our own lives. You can know who God is. You can know what God is like. Your theology can be just on point. You can even know how to be saved from your sin. You might be able to wax eloquently about soteriology, right? This is the order of salvation. This is how things happen. But to experience your salvation to exult in it and rejoice in it and enjoy it, to feel its realness and sense the truth and the beauty of it, to be moved at your core by the severity and the kindness of the Lord. This is another matter entirely, and this is what the entire Bible is about. More than theology, more than, more than anthropology, more than soteriology, we are talking about an experience of God that moves us to doxology. Doxology is the worship of God. To exult in God through praise of him or worship of him. Do you know anything about that? Do you know how to exult in God. It's easy to get your theology down. Boom, give me a systematic theology. I read it. I got the Bible answers or I'm, you know, biblical theology. I got the answers. Boom, I got it. I get what God's like. I understand how people are saved. I get that. I kind of understand that. But do you know what it's like to experience God? To have a real relationship with him, to exult in the work that he's done in the world and in your own life. That's what this text is about. I feel like we are all like sleeping beauty. We are unconscious and separated from our love until we receive the kiss of life from our prince and then we are awakened and we are brought back to life to see and to sing, to enjoy and to exult, to meditate and write about the glories of God in the land of the living. And this is what we see right here in 15. Moses encounters his theology. Moses experiences his soteriology and he wants someone to praise and thank. You know what? I was reading this week and it was uh, 
Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. It's one of his newest books, and it's a great book. And he said, one of the saddest moments in an atheist's life is when he experiences a moment of transcendence. He experiences a moment of beauty, of glory, of bliss, of grace, and he has no one to thank for it. Just is. We, when we experience these things, we want to exalt. We want to praise. And Moses shows us exactly how to do that. Let's look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The, the Hebrew there is actually, he has triumphed, triumphed. He's, it's like double. He's just, he's blown it out of the water. God has just crushed the enemy. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Yes, we want to sing about what we love. And what does Moses say? The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is the most glorious. The Lord is the most beautiful. The Lord is the most loving. If I'm going to love, if I'm going to sing about what I love, of course I'm going to sing about God. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy in the greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water's piled up. Now, that's an interesting thought, right? That's called anthropomorphism right there. That's Moses using the anatomy of a man to try to communicate something he just watched God do. He watched his waters pile up, and he's picturing God snorting above them. Okay, that's how you saw it, huh, Moses? Okay, all right. This is what artists do, right? They communicate something in unique ways, and he's doing that for us right there. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea, and the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, first off, I want us to see here, as we're working through this, how God-centered this psalm is. This psalm isn't, I felt so concerned, I felt so scared, and now I feel so good, and I have these warm fuzzies, and oh, I feel like worshiping you, and I feel this, and I feel that, and oh, it's not this, emo just, I mean, there's emotions in it, but it's, it's not man-centered, it's God-centered. And this is why when we choose songs to worship at Sacred City, we try to make them as God-centered as possible about him and what he's done and not just how we feel in the moment. 
So you see all of this language about singing to the Lord, but it says the Lord and my God and my Father's God, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's all about God and what he's done and not necessarily about how they felt about what God has done. See that? And the actually enemy, you see all these personal pronouns when you get to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, I, 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 my, my, my. And then, God, and then Moses is like, yeah, he said all that. But then God showed him, it's not about you, Pharaoh. And it says, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And what does he do? This is his exaltation right here. Exult. Who? When he thinks about it, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who does this? Who snorts and annihilates his enemies? Who does that? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. He is exulting in the God of his salvation. But now look how he kind of transitions a little bit. Says this, you have led in your steadfast love. That word right there, that's hesed. We've talked a lot about it in Exodus. We've talked a lot about it in Genesis. It's God's covenantal love, God's one-way love. He only loves his people with this love. Not this general sense of God loves the whole world. He heseds his covenant elected people. In your steadfast love, the people whom you have, look at that, whom you have redeemed. Redemption's past. It's already happened. You have guided them by, look, your strength. But look at this. To your holy abode. Hmm. I would circle that. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now, what's going on right here? Okay. Imagine you're this tiny kind of new nation, you're coming out of Egypt, right? And everywhere around you is hostile to you. They, and they have better, they all have armies and they've, you know, they've been practicing, they've been going to war. You don't have anything. You're kind of arrayed like an army. You've, you know, you've probably got some hammers and stuff, but you don't have any battle experience and you're going into these hostile nations. And then all these nations, they're sending out spies to go check out on Israel. What are they going to do? And then all of a sudden, there's spies. Can you just imagine there's spies watching? And all of a sudden, boom, Red Sea opens up. Boom, Red Sea closed. And they go, oh, they have one of those? They go back and they're like, what happened? They had something that opened up the sea and then it crushed them. They're like, what is this new magic, right? What is this? They would have... They, they have the atomic bomb, right? All, their na- all the nations around them are looking and going, what is this? What do they have? That's what's going on right now. Verse 15, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. This, they're, they're freaking out, all these other places. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of you, the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. And this would give people a swagger. This would give people a little bit, I would say, an appropriate swagger, right? They can't turn the switch on this thing, but they have God on on their side. 
till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them, look here, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Okay, so we saw he's leading them to his abode, and now he said, I'm going to plant you on my own mountain, the place, uh uh-oh, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Here we go. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, this is what we need to see here. God is taking them somewhere. Their salvation has a place in mind. Their salvation has a goal. It has an end game. God has an end in mind when he redeemed them and rescued them. And Moses saying, we have been redeemed. We have been purchased. We have been rescued, but you're taking us somewhere. And he says, where are you taking us? To your abode, to the sanctuary, to your own mountain. Now what's going on here? God is saying this. I have rescued and redeemed you so that you can live with me in our own sacred space. Now, what we're going to find out soon in Exodus, this sacred space is first Mount Sinai. Moses is going to go up there and meet with God. Then God tells him to build this tabernacle exactly how he wants it built. They build this tabernacle, and now God will actually inhabit this tabernacle, and Moses can meet with God inside this tabernacle and some different, it's going to be some funky things we'll talk about later, okay? Then later, they're going to go into the, into the land of Canaan, and Canaan is this new abode, this new place that God will inhabit. And then in Canaan, you're going to have the nation of Israel, Right? And then you're going to have the city of Jerusalem. It's God's special city. And then in in Jerusalem, you're going to have the temple. And the temple is going to be eventually created where God's presence will inhabit and God's presence will dwell. And then, because of the people's disobedience and God's providence, the temple gets destroyed. Israel gets annihilated. Israel gets carried off into Babylon. And the sacred space where man is supposed to meet with God is gone off the face of the earth. And then the incarnation happens. Then Jesus, the Son of God, steps into our earth and becomes the new temple, becomes the new sacred place, the sacred space for us. And what's interesting is that Jesus then opens up other sacred spaces. We have heaven, so if we die right now in Christ, we go to heaven. That's a sacred space where God dwells, but that's not heaven's not the end game. Heaven's not the, the ultimate sacred space because when Christ comes back again to gather up his bride, he's going to renew all of creation, and now the whole earth, it's called the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, and the earth meets it, and the, and the earth is recreated, and then the whole earth will be this new sacred space where man and God will dwell together. We read in the book of Revelation that it doesn't, we don't need a sun because God himself is our light in this new sacred space. But what's interesting, that's where we're going. And I wish I had more time to talk about that because I just love talking about the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. From right here in Exodus, we see God has a goal not just to save people. He has a goal to get them somewhere. 
but this is, it's, it's not Star Trek. He's not going to beam them up exactly how they are. And this is the kind of the question that we see. If I take you, who I've just redeemed, and I drop you into the sacred space, you will ruin it. <laughs> right? It's like a kid's outside playing in the mud, and you go and pick them up, and you just bring them and sit them in the living room. They're going to ruin it. And so what we see God do, God is kind of asking them this. What type of person will you be when you get there? When I bring you to where I'm taking you, what kind of person will you be when you get there? One of our elder candidates, Jesse Walden, loves to say, wherever you go, there you are. What he's saying is you can change your location but no matter where you go, you can't get away from you. You can't take a vacation from you. You take you with you wherever you go. And what that means is if you're a negative person, let's use it like this. If you're a negative person, you can put you on the beach with a cool drink in your hand and you're still going to find something to complain about. It's hot. Oh, mosquitoes. Kids are blocking my view. Oh, I got sand on my face, right? You put a negative person in heaven, they'd ruin it. Put a sinful person in the temple, they'll ruin it. And so we need to see that God's goal for them is not just to get to the promised land. He wants them to be promised land people before they get there. He wants them to reflect who he is and what he has done before they get to where they're going. And the same is true for us. The Christian faith isn't just about going to heaven when you die. The Christian faith definitely changes our eternal habitation, but it does more than that. It changes our identity. It changes what we love and it changes how we live our life. It changes our behavior right now. And if it doesn't, if your faith doesn't change your behavior, then I don't think it's the Christian faith. See, God has gotten them out of Egypt. They are saved. They're saved. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been saved from your Egypt as well. God has saved you. Your salvation is certain and can never be lost. But here's what many people fail to see. Salvation leads to sanctification. Sanctification is what we sang about today, being made more and more like Jesus, being made more and more like God. People say, you can take the man out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the man. Well, God says you can, and that process is called sanctification. You have been set free from sin, and now let's put that sin to death in your life and live like you are set free from sin. God has saved a pitiful, sad, and grumbling people but will you still be a grumbler when I bring you into the promised land? That's what God's saying to them. Will you still constantly doubt me after all I've done for you? 
Will you learn how to exult and rejoice in my love for you? And will you then give your love to me? After what I just did for you, has it changed you at all? That's what God is kind of leading them to. And so let's keep reading. I'm going to skip 19 through 21. I've kind of mentioned it already. They're, they're doing their dance and singing their song. Verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Okay, let's play this out here. God has just annihilated their enemies. All the miracles. We're talking plagues they've seen, right? We're talking destroying Egypt, you know, Pharaoh's army. And now God is leading them out into the wilderness. They're three days out. Three days from the most spectacular event probably any human eye has ever witnessed up until this moment. And look what happens. They have no water. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, come on. First off, I got a couple things to say. One, the people should be sensing a setup here, right? Moses stands up in Egypt, let my people go. It gets worse for them. They go, Moses, why did you do this? God sends the plagues. They go, whoa. God delivers them. They go, whoa. Then they get backed up to the Red Sea. They go, Moses, why did you do this? We should have died back there. or We should have served Egypt. We should have stayed slaves in Egypt. That would have been better for us. God opens up the thing. Whoa. Right? And now they should be sensing a setup here. Oh, what's he going to do now? We got no water. Oh, this, is, this should be fun. Kids, watch. Here we go. Moses, do it again, right? But instead, instead, they complain. They grumble. See? They grumble. Everywhere you go, there you are. They grumble against Moses. Now, every difficulty so far in this story has been another opportunity for God to show up and show out. Right? Now, listen, I'm just saying, every negative circumstance they've experienced so far has been another opportunity for God to display his glory, for him to show up and show out, and them to go to exult in it. Isn't this better than just walking out of Egypt, first time you go, let my people go. And he's like, all right, go ahead. And they gather their stuff up and they walk out, walk out of Egypt. Isn't, I mean, then you think God is, you know, that was not a big deal what he did for me. But the way God has saved them should have provoked their awe. It should encourage them and almost create in them this exaltation, right? Now, if that was true for them, what if you believed it for yourself? What if you believed every, tr- every trial, every difficult circumstance in your life right now was God setting you up to watch him do something great in your life? What if you believed it? How would that change how you reacted in the moment? How would that change how you feel in the moment? Look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? 
Two things. <laughs> Two things. That artistic nature of the, the artistic bent of the human nature, it cuts both ways. When we see something beautiful, we want to say something beautiful about it. But when we see something crappy, we want to say something crappy about it too, right? That, that's how we get country music, right? So <laughs> now they're like, well, we got no water. All we got is dirty water. You open up the Red Sea, now all we got is dirty water. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing, look who gets the blame. Look who gets the blame. Moses. And the people grumbled against Moses. Hmm. Moses is an intermediary, right? Moses, all Moses is doing is what God told him to do. All Moses is saying is what God told him to say. So the people aren't, they're mad at Moses. They're blaming Moses, but in reality, they're mad at God. But look who gets the blame. Listen, I know that there are bad churches out there, and I know there are bad leaders, and there are bad pastors out there, but be really careful when you're speaking ill of your spiritual leaders. It just might be that you are actually mad at God. You are frustrated that he isn't doing what you want him to do, and therefore you curse your leaders and you blame your leaders. Now, what's interesting to me, have you ever seen the movie Stepford Wives? Stepford Wives, it's about, there's a couple versions of it. Uh, there's a newer version, older version. The older version a little bit better, I think. But uh, in the older version, these men, I think it's up in New England or something, these men get tired of their wife's opinion, right? They're just tired of the, the, the having somebody to actually conversate with and not getting their own way. All they want to hear from their wife is, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. That's what they... <laughs> So here is what they do. In the original version, they kill their wives. They kill their wives, and they create basically robots that look identical to their wives. And these robots, all they ever, they give them everything they want. They make the dinner, they make the drinks, and all they ever say is, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. In the newer version, you know, they soft it down because we can't handle that kind of intensity. So all they do is like reprogram their brain or something to do this, right? Now, this, this is interesting. So now what happens are, is these men no longer have a relationship with a human being, okay? They now have, um, how do I say it? They now are, I'm going to use the word relating, but they're relating to an appliance. It does everything they want it to do. It's not a real relationship. They programmed it to say what it says. Now, here's what I'm saying. I think many people want a Stepford pastor, and they want a Stepford God. They want a pastor to tell them what they want to hear. They don't want to be offended. They don't want their concept, their ideas crossed. They don't want to be challenged. They want a Stepford pastor to tell them exactly what they want to hear, and they want a Stepford God who does everything exactly how they want it to do. 
And I would present to you that if you have a Stepford pastor and you have a Stepford God, you don't have relationship. You don't even have a, you don't have a real relationship. You have an appliance. You have an echo chamber. And if you don't have a real relationship with God, you, you just don't have a real God. You have a God made in your own image. What kind of God can never cross your will? What kind of God cannot say you're doing something wrong? What kind of God could say, no, no, you're blind. You don't understand what you're doing. You have a Stepford God. And many people want a Stepford pastor. They'll go to church to church to church to find that one Stepford pastor who, who wants to be a Stepford pastor. It's easy to fill seats if I'm just trying to tell people what they want to hear. They'll just tell everybody what they want to hear and they feel nice and comfortable and sit there. Don't feel challenged at all. But Mo Moses here. We're going this way. Going tomorrow. Moses, what's going on? Why are you doing Listen, your life has taken unexpected detours and God has great plans to use these detours to get the Egypt out of you. And it won't come out of you if you have a Stepford God, if you have a Stepford pastor, you have to be challenged. Your thinking has to be challenged. Some of your wrong beliefs have to be challenged. These things have to be challenged. You, you've got to get, he's got to get you out in the desert where he can, here's the big word we're about to see, he can test you. And so sometimes, I'm challenged, you're grumbling about churches and you're grumbling about pastors and you're grumbling about MC leaders. You're grumbling about God. And God is doing it not to be mean to you. He's doing it because he loves you. He's doing it to sanctify you. He's doing it to make you into the type of person that will actually enjoy heaven when you get there. Let's keep reading. And Moses cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Once again, God does a miracle. <clears throat> Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Look, tested them. God is leading them into difficult situations. God is confusing them on purpose. He's bringing them out to change them. There he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Listen. Only if you have a God who can disagree with you, who can change your life in ways that you aren't ready for, 
who can lead you to places you wouldn't go on your own. Only then do you have a real God with a, who has a real personality. Like that's the, that's the reality of having a marriage, right? Like she has her own opinion. She has her own thoughts. And guess what? Half, I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna be generous to both of us. Half the time, those thoughts are better than my thoughts, right? And I need those thoughts. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Today is one of those days, right? We've written the policy on you don't bring, you know, try not to bring sick kids and put them in the nursery. But today I was like, no, babe, this is the first day. Just bring the baby. I don't care if she's sick. She's going to get her baby all sick. It don't matter. We're all one big family. She's like, no, I'm staying home with the baby. I'm like, fine, stay home with the baby. That was the right decision. I need that. I need that. I'm hardcore. It's snowy like this. The guy's like, are we have texted me last night. Are we having service? I'm like, yeah, I'm riding my bike. Talking about that's what we're doing. That's how we do it here, right? We need real relationship. The same is, what, same is true with your pastor. The same is true with our God. We don't want a Stepford pastor. We don't want a Stepford God. We need a real God with a real personality. This is a test. I love it. I love what God says here. It's just so simple. In, in one sense, it's so simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's simple. So how am I going to be changed? How am I going to be sanctified? How am I going to be the man that I need to be to get where I'm going? That's what you're going to do. That's all you're going to do right here. You're going to trust me. You're, you're going to listen to me, you're going to read my word, you're going to do what it says, that the word of God is going to be the deciding factor in your life, not your opinions, not what your professor told you, not what your parents say, the word of God is going to be the arbiter of all issues, trust me, listen to me, obey me, and here it is, it will go well for you. Now, that does not mean, we've already seen this, that they're never going to suffer. That does not mean that things aren't going to, you know, the wheels aren't going to come off sometimes, or it looks like the wheels are going to come off. It means I will take care of you, and I will protect you, and I will be there when they do come off. But overall principle, obey God, and it will go well for you. That's what he's saying here. God says, this is really simple. You're saved, now live like it. Trust the God who saved you. Diligently listen to him and his words and do that which is right in his eyes. Now, here's the deal. Good luck with that. All right? Oh, so easy. I just need to listen to God and do what he says. I never thought of that before. It might be good to listen to God and do what he says. What's the problem with that? The problem is that, the problem is wherever you go, there you are. The problem is sin is inherent and sin is in us and sin trips us up and sin blinds us. And we want to create these echo chambers that everybody has our same opinion and we don't ever get called out and our sin never is challenged, right? We're sinners, that's a problem. And God knew that, God foresaw that, 
And what did God do? Again, God did the incarnation. God became a man, Jesus Christ. And guess what? When you leave heaven, everywhere you go, there you are. And heaven came to earth and walked among us. And God said, go, to the, go out. To, I want you to fast 40 days and go out to the desert and be tempted by the devil. Jesus said, okay. Ace the test. No grumbling. Everywhere you go, there you are. Heaven in the desert. Everywhere go, everywhere Jesus went, heaven went with him, brought the kingdom. And he lived a perfect life. Listen, that you don't live, that I don't live, that none of us can live. He lived a perfect life, therefore perfectly obeying God. He did what God said. Trust me, listen to me, obey me. Only Jesus did it. But here's the great news of the gospel. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience is counted to us. Greatest transaction, right? Our sin gets counted to him. He dies on the cross, kills our sin, and he gifts us his righteousness. And now the father sees us in Christ, sees us as if we have perfectly obeyed him. We're not trying to earn his love, earn his favor. Our obedience is out of our salvation. See this, guys, these folks already have been delivered, already been redeemed. Their salvation has already been certain. And now they're being sanctified. Our obedience is about sanctification. Our obedience is about living more like Jesus. So the world gets a better picture of who our God is and what he's like. All that comes out, secondary, out of our salvation. We're saved and we can be sanctified by God and through his Holy Spirit. And I'm gonna ask you, has your salvation produced the fruit of sanctification. I had time, I'd go to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. You can write it down and look at it later. Has your salvation produced the fruit of sanctification? That's the question. Another way to say it is, we're saved for discipleship, not just saved, right? We're disciples, we're becoming more and more and more like Jesus? Or has, is your salvation something that happened at camp 20 years ago and you don't really think about it? You don't exult in it. It's something that happened way back there. Or is it something that happened and is now still happening? It's working itself out as you're becoming more and more like Jesus and you're following Jesus and you're making disciples and you're living in community and you're on mission and you're spending time with the least of these. That's what's happening. I pray that it is. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you just to get to see this glimpse of, you, of your goodness, of Moses' exultation in your goodness. And then once again, we get to see how fickle your people are. And we, I think we have moments probably of faithfulness like Moses, but I think the majority of our days are spent grumbling like the Israelites. 
And Father, you said that you have lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, and you've given us the Holy Spirit. That means heaven is in us. So there's there's a peace there. And I pray that it would, the Spirit would do the work in our hearts to drive out those rocks of grumbling, the rocks in our heart that permit or keep the seed of your word from growing and flourishing in our hearts, that you would drive out those rocks of grumbling, that you would make us a highly exultant people in you. We would see your goodness, we would say it, we would share it to other people, and we would just enjoy you and enjoy your gifts to us in the midst of it all because of the work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf on the cross. Father, we thank you for the work you're doing here, the work you're doing in Moline. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our heart. And now as we come to your table, Father, I pray that our minds and our eyes will be focused on Jesus. That this isn't just an ordinance that we do, but Jesus is meeting us here at the table. Jesus is reminding us here in our fickleness, in our grumbling, he still died for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed, and we eat it now, remembering that, grateful, exulting in our salvation in this moment. Father, we eat and we exult in you. We enjoy what you've done for us. We enjoy who you are. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.